sermon is titled, it's a long title, The Satisfaction and Security of a Love Relationship with God. Basically, when you think of a love relationship, especially a romantic relationship, there are two main things that especially the bride is looking for, and the church is called the bride of Christ, and it's satisfaction and security, those two things, mainly. And so with that, on this day that we celebrate love, I want us to go back in time, probably to, I believe, about the year 970 B.C., and we come to a place in northern Israel. I know probably most of you are familiar with the story. I've certainly spoken about it before. <laughs> and let me just set the scene. There's this man, and he's very powerful and very wealthy. In fact, he's the richest man in the world at this point in history. Seriously. He's richer than Jeff, jo Jeff Bezos. Is that his name? Uh, richer than Bill Gates. He's the wealthiest man in the world, and he's very powerful. He's a man of great stature. He's a king, and um, he's got lots of property all over, particularly vineyards, along with other things. And so he goes periodically to inspect his vineyards all over the country. And on this particular day, this mighty, wealthy, powerful king is inspecting one of his vineyards in then Galilee, northern Israel. And he comes upon this woman. We call her the Shulamite. Of course, you might know that I'm in the Song of Solomon. Am I going to really talk about the Song of Solomon on Valentine's Day? Yes, I am. Because the message here from God to you and me, it's, it's often mostly been thought of as an illustration that illustrates God's love for his people, Israel, which parallels the bride of Christ in the New Testament. But what I want to focus on today is the message of God's love for you as an individual. And a lot of people don't, they can't interpret Song of Solomon this way. They reject that idea, but I don't. I think it's, it applies because Jesus said in John chapter 5, I believe, at one point Jesus looked at the Pharisees, the studiers of the law, of the scriptures, and he said, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have life, but these are they that testify of me. So why don't you come to me? the person that you're reading about. Why don't you come to me so you can have life? So Jesus is saying that the scriptures, these Old Testament scriptures testify of him. And so if you look at Jesus' life in the gospels, who is Jesus there for? The individual. I mean, if you read the gospels, he's all, yes, he came to save the world, but not everybody accepts him and receives him. So he came very clearly for the individual. And if you read the life of Jesus, he's always, always, always there for the individual person. He's always stopping for the one, the one, the one that's forgotten, invisible, unnoticed, lost. He's there for the individual. So if Jesus is attesting that, yes, these scriptures testify of him who is there for you and me as individuals, then this must be. This message in this book, this Song of Solomon, must be for you and me 
as individuals. And so that's how I'm applying it today. So here's this king. It's, it's just a fascinating, true account. It's a historical account of this king. And he sees this peasant woman working in a vineyard. And it's striking, the things we know about her or that we can, we can surmise from the scripture. We know that she is most likely a Gentile. Most commentators say that. She is nameless. No name. Her name's never mentioned. And she's, her fa- it, it's indicated that she is an orphan, or she was without a father. She didn't have a father who raised her. Because it mentions her mother and her brothers. And her brothers, we're going to find out, were uh, cruel to her. They put her to hard work and forced labor. And so as we'll see, she mentions her skin. Well, let's look at it. Song of Solomon 1, verse 5. She says, I am dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem. She goes on to say in verse 6, Do not look upon me because I am dark, because the sun has tanned me, has burned me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me the keeper of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept. So here's this peasant woman, and she works very hard in the sun, and that's why her skin is dark. And she's had, you know, a life of forced labor, And I want to just note right there what that means to us, spiritually speaking. People who don't know God, the true God, who revealed himself in Jesus Christ. And even people who do, who claim to know him. Until you and I have a revelation of the God of love, the God who is love, and the God who loves us as individuals, we will so often... And so many in the church live a very Christian religion that looks as though we're being put to forced labor. How much of our lives do we spend working really hard to measure up in some form or fashion? Measuring up to other people, measuring up to expectations, or measuring up to God and what I think he expects of me what he wants me to be, and we know what he wants us to be, and we can't naturally meet that expectation. So then we begin this, what we think is the true Christian life, but it's actually a very religious life of forced labor. Maybe if I keep trying hard enough, I will impress God enough into liking me. I know he loves me. He died on the cross for me. See, my struggle for so many years, well into my adult life, was, yes, Jesus loved me. He died on the cross for me, as we just sang, but I don't really think he actually likes me because I'm such a mess. (laughs) I can't seem to get it together. (laughs) I can't be that quiet, sweet, nice person like sister (laughs) so-and-so, you know. And so I struggled with that so many years, being put to forced labor, to where it it, it showed, it it showed an exasperation and frustration because what was boiling inside was I'm I'm not actually loved the way I need to be loved. I I had not, that had not been a revelation to my heart, even as a believer, even as a, quote, mature believer, active in ministry. 
unloved. So I thought. So this woman was put to forced labor. Galatians uh, 4 verse 8 says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. Slaves to opinion. Slaves to whatever voices the enemy loves to hurl at our minds. It says, you are not enough. Or maybe, you're too much. And therefore, God doesn't quite like you as, enough, as, as much as he could or would if perhaps you were a little better. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. But now that you know God, or rather, hear this, are known by God, or rather are known by God, how is it, O oh Christian, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? And so the king Solomon, he sees this woman, this peasant woman, working hard in the vineyard, and somehow she captures the heart of this great king, the most powerful and wealthy king in the world. This peasant woman captures his heart. And read, read these eight chapters in the Song of Solomon this week. Because it's a picture of God's love and how it can transform you and I as individuals through finding out that only in this love, this divine love, given to us freely by the true God of the universe, revealed in his son Jesus Christ, only through this love can we ever find satisfaction and security. By the way, I love that Galatians 4, 8. In the NIV, I'm sorry, I didn't tell you. I read that in the NIV. It says, now that you know God, or rather are known by God. I've told you before, I'm a collector of unlikely convert stories. And one of my favorites is Charlie McKessie. He's an, an English uh, artist. He was an atheist for a long time. And God just revealed himself to him, just boom, out of the blue one day. Just, so I think he was riding a bike. He tells this story somewhere. He was uh, out, outside and I think riding a bike or something. And God just, just suddenly revealed to his heart, I am true. I'm, tr I'm true. I'm the true God. And what, he, what kept washing over him was this truth that he was known he suddenly realized that, and he just kept saying over and over to himself, he, he, it was like he heard God's voice saying, I know you, I know you. And isn't that what we need? <laughs> I mean, social media and all the numbers and notifications and likes and hearts and dislikes are testament to the fact that we've got this desperate need to be known. And God said to this artist, I know you. It's okay, I know you. All your years of expressing my beauty to the world through your beautiful art. I know you. I, I know I did that. Like that's me, that's an expression of who I am. I know you. I made you. So we go to this woman. She's called the Shulamite. 
And let's just, what I want to do today is just do a brief overview and look at some of these verses in this Song of Songs. It's simply a poem. It's a long love poem. It's not necessarily in chronological order. It involves their engagement and their wedding, but there's a couple bad dreams scattered in there, and, you know, it's, it's poems. Um, and I want to look at three elements of a love relationship with God this morning. Not No, the two, I'm sorry. <laughs> Satisfaction and security of a love relationship. Uh, let's see. Chapter 2, verse 8. Yeah, I'm going to say this. It's not in my notes, but it's important. I love it when people ask me difficult questions about Christianity. I thrive on it. It's like so many years of my life, I was afraid of the difficult questions. I would hide, <laughs> right? And then, you know, I just started learning and digging and studying. And then when I really came into a real authentic relationship with God where I had that same revelation that he loves me. Then I became secure, more secure in his love. I mean, it's a process, right? And so now I, I'm like, okay, come on. It's almost like, like where are the, bring the difficult questions. And so someone sent me this question one time, and I, I love this question. The question was, why is God so male? Why did God reveal him? So why does he insist on, okay, to put it in postmodern speak, a personal pronoun of he and him? It's a good question. In Genesis, God, the, the Trinity, speaking to each other, said, let us make man in our image. And so when they did, when, when God and the, the Son and the Holy Spirit created mankind. Jesus is the creator, working with the Holy Spirit and with God the Father. When they created mankind, it says they created them male and female. In his image, they created them. So if to be created in God's image means to be created as either a male or a female, either one, okay, then why did God choose male as the way in which he revealed himself to humanity? It's a really good question. I mean, Jesus, God could have revealed himself in a female and have, could have just as easily, maybe, stay with me, come and become a, an atoning sacrifice for our sins on the cross. Why did it need to be the carpenter, the carpenter's son, son from Nazareth? Why is this so important? Oh, I, this is one of my favorite sermons. It's actually a whole other sermon. I'm just giving you the encapsulated version right now because it just excites me. Here's one of the most important reasons for that. You see, God, I believe, looked down at creation, at his human creation that he created. And in the eternal wisdom and mind of God said, what can I do with this creation, these humans? What can I um, create? What can I give them to show them what I am like compared to all the other gods? I know I've taught on this before. This might be familiar. I think I have. How can I show humanity that I am very different from all the other gods that they have to work hard to appease and they have to pursue? even by literally 
climbing tirelessly up steps of a temple. Go out of their way, bruising and bleeding and beating themselves to offer some sacrifice to appease a God. How can I show them that that's not me? And he said, I will be the one who pursues. I will be the man in this relationship. I'm going to be the God that pursues. And they, my human creation, will take the role of the woman in this relationship and they will know that I will always pursue them and I will never stop. I will never stop pursuing no matter what. And so he calls himself our lover, our friend, our husband, our betrothed, all those things, our father, our brother. Because in God's design, he had it so that the male, the man, would be the one who pursues. And don't you know this is true? Come on. Even in a postmodern society, you just, just research by vast majority, every woman, almost every woman, wants to be pursued. Hello. Wants to be pursued. You look up any kind of relationship advice from, any, from secular or Christian relationship counselors, and they will tell you, girls, don't you dare be the first one to send that text. Or make that. I'm talking about initiating a relationship, right? I'm, I'm, ta- I'm not talking about an established relationship, a healthy like a marriage relationship. I'm talking about initiating a, a relationship. And so God started to write this illustration into human history. And this is one of the stories. Solomon, I want you to go to such and such vineyard today. And there's a girl. And she's real tan because she's been working hard. And man, you're going to blow her socks off. You're going to sweep her off her feet. She won't even believe it. I want you to go find her, Solomon. And I want you to marry her and bring her into your palace to live as a queen in Israel. This peasant woman without a father, without a name, who's been put to forced labor, Solomon, that's the one I want you to go after and pursue. It's the love story of God's love for you and me. It's a beautiful picture. So let's just quickly run through some of these verses and just take note of what this kind of pursuing love is like. Verse 1, chapter 1, verse 7. She says to him, and they go back and forth. She says to him, tell me, O you whom I love, where you feed your flock, where you make it rest at noon. For why should I be as one who veils herself by the flocks of your companions? This is a little bit difficult. You know, there's different thoughts on this. But here's one possibility. I think it's valid. I do know that in... In ancient culture, one who veiled herself was a prostitute. One who never knows the satisfaction of intimacy within a love relationship. Hear that. 
She says, why should I continue go on being like that kind of woman who will never know the satisfaction of intimacy within a love relationship? See, God, that's what God wants from you and me. This is not a religion. It's not about appeasement, performance, working really hard, being put to forced labor. You're never going to measure up. God's never going to like you because look at all you've done and been. No. Why should I be as one who veils herself? Why should I keep on living my life as that woman who is devalued and has to work really hard, really hard, to try to find some sense of value, never knowing the satisfaction of intimacy within a love relationship. Why should I be as one who veils herself? So there's one thought. Look at this kind of love, though. Go back to verse 2. She says, by the way, this is a pretty colorful book. I'm not going to read the whole thing here. I'm just not. I mean, in ancient times, a Jewish man had to be 30 years old to be allowed to read this. It might still be true today in that culture. So you can read that. You can read, you can read this on your own. I, I mean, it's, it's, it'll make you blush, some of the stuff in here. But she says in, in, in verse 2, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Wine always speaks of joy in Scripture. I'm sure you know this. Always speaks of joy. And doesn't it naturally? I mean, we, we think of joy and happiness when we think of wine. John 15, 11, Jesus said, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Someone Wednesday night said something to, the, something to the effect of God's goal for us is that we be happy. I would draw a distinction. I mean, it's good. It's, 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 a, it's, a, uh, it's good. It's true. But I would say joy. I would say joy. Joy is a particular kind of happiness that's not dependent on what's happening. And so listen to what Jesus said in John 15, 11. These things I have spoken to you. Look. These things, all these things, all these things I have spoken to you and the things I have spoken to you through my people. When we come together, it's why we get together. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. Did you know that God wants his joy to remain in you and be full? That's what he wants for you. How do we stay there? How do we have his joy remain? We keep listening to what he's telling us. We keep listening. We keep going back to the love letter. We keep picking it up. We keep picking up the Valentine's card from Jesus. And we keep listening. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. She says, By night on my bed I sought the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. I will arise now, I said, and go about the city. This is, we believe this, people believe this, commentators, I guess, believe this is a dream she's having. I will arise now and go about the city, in the streets and in the squares. I will seek the one I love. I sought him, but I did not find him. The watchmen who go about the city, am I reading the right? Yes. They found me and said, I said, have you seen the one I love? Scarcely had I passed them when I found the one I love. I held him and would not let him go. 
These are just pictures of the quality of the relationship that she developed with King Solomon. I held him and would not let him go. Every single one of us, hopefully, will come to the place in life where we we realize God is it. Christ is everything I need. He's all I need, ultimately. And when I find him, whether for the first time in my life or when I find him in my days on a daily basis, I'm going to hold on to him and not let him go because I'm desperate and he's the only one that can satisfy. So I'm on point one, by the way, satisfaction. When you find the one who satisfies, you will hold on to him and not let him go. Chapter 5, verse 9. The daughters of Jerusalem. By the way, there's a criticism of this book because people, what, a common question is people say, well, didn't Solomon have like 700 wives and 300 concubines? Yes. But it's believed that this was in the very beginning before he started accumulating wives. A lot of them were national alliances. But this would have been like his first love. And even if it wasn't, she was definitely a favorite. And by the way, whenever you see polygamy and multiplication of wives in Scripture, it does not mean God condoned it. That's just an aside, but I wanted to point that out in case that question question never comes up. But for the sake of the illustration, this story today is about his relationship with his with this woman, this Shulamite, Shulamite woman, woman, and why it was so special. It was because of who she was and who he was. Anyway, uh, 5 verse 9, the women asked her, what is your beloved more than another beloved, O fairest among women? What is your beloved more than another beloved that you so charge us? This question to me sounds very much like something I've heard from people, and maybe you have too. See, they're asking her, what's so special about King Solomon? What's your beloved more than another? I've heard a question that goes something like this. Why Christianity? I mean, Jesus is, you know, he was a good, one of the good, one of the masters. But, you know, there are other religions and other masters and teachers that are just as good. Why Christianity? And look how she answers in verse 10, 5 verse 10. She says, my beloved is white and ruddy, chief among 10,000. He's chief among 10,000. It sounds like places in the scripture where Jesus is called the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And she goes on to answer them thus in verse 16. His mouth is most sweet. Yes, he is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. And listen to what she says. And this is my friend. And this is my friend. So why Jesus? Why the God of the Bible? Why Christianity? Because this is the only God who wants to be my friend. This is the only God who invites me to call him friend, who identifies himself not just as friend, but intimate friend, close friend. You ask me, who is this beloved among all the other beloveds? He's my friend among all the other things.
In John 15, Jesus looked at his disciples and he said, I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I'm calling you friends because you know what I'm doing. I tell you everything. That's a relationship. Other religions involve a servant relationship with God. This God says, no, you're my friend. You're my friend. If you, if you want to follow me, we're going to be friends. We're going to share things. We're going to share everything. This is about a close, intimate relationship with God, spiritual intimacy. So the love of God is the only relationship that is truly, ultimately, fully satisfying. And number two, we find security in it. Satisfaction and security. What does every woman need besides satisfaction? Security in a relationship. You know, no woman wants to settle down and then, like, be freaked out the rest of her life because she's, she's not secure. Like, she doesn't know if her needs are going to be provided for. But this is, so yes, this can be financial security, and God certainly promises to provide all of our needs. But it's so much more than that. It's the emotional security that you and I need. The realization that we are loved 100%, and we realize that so much that we have found our security in that. Go back to chapter 1, verse 15. Listen to what he says about her. Over and over, behold, you are fair, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes, singular vision. Chapter 2, verse 2, he says, my, he says, like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. See, we have to get this into our spirits this morning. You've got to realize that's how God sees you, like a lily among thorns. It's not that God looks at everyone else as being thorns. It's that he loves you. He's your furious favorite. I went to a doctor once, and she had a sticker on her wall that said, I'm Jesus' favorite, and I know exactly what she meant. I'm a lily among thorns. I'm his favorite but so are you. So are you. Only the God of the universe can think of every single individual that way. You're my favorite. Only God can do that. Verse 4, chapter 2, verse 4. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. That's a banner. It's an identifier. They raised banners. They, they used them in war, yes, but they also put them over the tents in the wilderness to mark the different tribes, the houses. It was an identifier. God's banner over you is love. What does it mean? When love, when God's love becomes your identity, it changes your security. You will only be as secure as your identity tells you to be. And you will only be as secure as how well-loved you know you are by God. When God's love is your banner, your identifier, your identity, when your identity no longer continues to be, I am only as good as how well I perform, how many titles behind my name, how many years of education I have, my background, my upbringing, my family, when that ceases to be your identity and it starts to be fully in the love of God for you, a lily among thorns, then you will become secure. And I want to be secure. 
I want to be more secure in God and his love for me as I abide in his love, as Jesus told us to in John 15, abide in my love. As I abide in that love, I become more secure in who I am in Christ because my security is in his love for me. It's not in your like for me. Newsflash. My security is not in how much you like me. It's not in how much I like me. I'm not listening to that voice anymore. My security is in God's unconditional love for me. It's the only one that exists. And that is where I find my security because that's where my identity is found. Chapter 3, verse 11. This is the wedding scene. Go forth, all old daughters of Zion, and see King Solomon with the crown with his with which his mother crowned him on the day of his wedding. Listen to this, the day of the gladness of his heart. This groom is not dragging his feet to the altar. No, on the day of the gladness of his heart. Do you know you make God's heart glad? He is so happy to be linked up with you when you say yes to him for life. Yes, I do, Lord, forever. I'm yours. It makes his heart glad, the gladness of his heart. Chapter 4, verse 7. Just a few more verses, we'll be done. Chapter 4, verse 7. He says to her, you are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. No blemish, no imperfection. All those things we get all down on ourselves about, he doesn't see them. He's a bridegroom madly in love with you and me. And the things we see about ourselves that we get tripped over, he says, you are all fair, my love, and there is no spot in you. It reminds me of Isaiah 118, where the prophet Isaiah says, come now, God says through him, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Chapter 4, verse 9. He says to her, you have ravished my heart, my sister, my spouse. He was, not literally her sister, it was an expression of endearment. You have ravished my heart with one look of your eyes. When's the last time you made eye contact with God? I'm talking about taking time, just you and him, just like you would with a close friend, where you get really honest with God and you say, okay, I'm looking at you square in the eyes right now, God. And I want you to know that I love you, or at least I want to love you. And I need to know how you feel about me. And I want you to tell me. So here I am, and I'm not going to fight this anymore. I'm not going to argue with you. You already know what I think about me, but now tell me what you think about me. With one look of your eyes, you have ravished my heart. It's all he wants. It's all he wants. He just wants to look us in the eyes. Chapter 6, verse 9. My dove, my perfect one, is the only one. There it is again, the favorite. The only one of her mother, the favorite of the one who bore her. The daughters saw her and called her blessed, the queens and the concubines, and they praised her. Chapter 7, verse 6. 
how fair and how pleasant you are, O love, with your delights. This speaks to me of, again, this thought of God delighting in us. Like actually enjoying being with each one of us. Chapter 7, verse 10, very quickly moving through here. I am my beloved's and his desire is toward me. Did you know God wants to spend time with you? He wants to be with you. He desires your company. We can't wrap our human minds around the truth, the reality that the God of the universe actually would, would pursue you and seek you out for your company. You could say, it's like we know God doesn't need any one of us, but he chooses to need us. That's amazing to me. God has chosen to put himself in a place in this relationship where he would actually say, I need to spend time with you. Because he chooses to. Because love. Chapter 8, verse 6. Set me as a seal on your heart, as a seal upon your arm. I think of Isaiah 49, 16, where God says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. This is serious. This, is, this speaks of I, I, your mind for life. You know, I almost have a tattoo imagery of God's arm. Like, you're, like I'm, I'm, I mean this for life. Chapter 8, verse 8. Nope, that's not the one. Chapter. <laughs> where? <laughs> uh, God's love can't do Let's see. The waters can't quench it. Where's that one? The waters can't quench it. Waters can't. Uh, Thank you. <laughs> yeah, not reading the other verse. H87. Many waters cannot quench love, nor can the floods drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would utterly be despised. Two great truths are found in this little tiny verse. God's love cannot be destroyed, and it cannot be bought. Waters cannot quench love. Floods cannot drown it. If a man would give for love all the wealth of his house, it would be utterly despised. God's love for you will never be destroyed, and you can't purchase it. Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing. Do you hear this? What created thing in your life has tried to separate you from the love of God and come between you and God's love? Nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And his love can't be purchased, Romans 8, 32. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? God's love is a gift. It can't be burn, uh, earned and it can't be bought. And yet so much of the time, read the book of Galatians, that's what it's about, we think that we can try to earn and purchase God's approval through all the things we do and try to be. 
but his love can't be bought. It's a free gift. Chapter 8, verse 13, coming to a close. Chapter 8, verse 13. You who dwell in the gardens, he says to her, the companions, listen for your voice. Let me hear it. Hey, Shulamite woman, everybody else is listening to you, vying for your time. I want to hear your voice. Let me hear it. Oh, I love this. You see, this is the man who wants to talk to his wife. Huh. There's a model here. I wanna, I'm going to talk about marriage soon because it's really on my heart. It's been a while, and I care very much about marriages, and so does God. And we have to take care of marriages. But this is the God saying, talk to me. Let me hear your voice. And then we have these astonishing words in John 15. One of the most powerful passages in the Bible that demonstrate and speak of God's love for us and what it sounds like. Jesus says in John 15, 9. John 15, 9. I do think this is one of the most mind-blowing verses about love in the entire Bible. As the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that Jesus loves you the same exact way that the Father loves him? How well do you think the Father loves Jesus? Probably pretty well. Jesus said, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Now abide in my love. See, it's up to us to stay in that. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. See, it might sound conditional. It might sound, don't misinterpret this, because you read that and it might sound like, hey, as long as you please me and do what I want you to do, then I'll keep loving you. It's not what it's saying. See, the, the, the truth is, when you love someone, you naturally want to please them out of love. It's not forced labor. So Jesus is saying this, and this, this is a relationship where we please each other. You keep my commandments, and that's what keeps you in my love. What is his number one commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Stay with me, and therefore you will stay in my love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you have loved one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends.